Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back once again to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. It's a sunny day in Sweden, and I'm back with Jussi Roine. What's up? It is a sunny day in Finland as well. I'm not complaining, though, but I'm not used to it being so sunny and warm. <laughs> what is this bright thing? <laughs> yes, so let me let me close the blinds. Um, so uh, what's up here? Uh, perhaps a bit of a background. I often plan my my future with, with a few big milestones. And it's not too scientific. It's, it's more like in the summer, I sit down and I, I list things that I feel I should be achieving in the next year or two. And then a year later, I cheat at least and figure out if I got anything done. Uh, so I spent some time this summer on figuring out what needs to happen uh, next year. So that would be 2021. And one of those for me would be graduating from school. And I hope that happens in the next six months. Uh, but the other one is that I'm planning on building a house, like a, like a physical house. And uh, the design process is one, and then financing that is another aspect. But the most important aspect, which I think is worth mentioning here, is figuring out all the IoT things I can embed in the house that I want, but I don't necessarily need. You always need it. And yeah. I mean, this is... I can just think about this myself. Obviously, this is a cool milestone building your own house is it's quite the undertaking, all the decisions that you need to do around that. But probably the IoT decision upfront is the biggest one because you want to make yeah. that right and you don't want to have the wrong things. And then when everything <laughs> is done, you're like, nope, I need to replace it. So I I understand, but pretty cool milestone to, to just build a house. Uh, so... So perhaps in 75 episodes from now, we can revisit this topic and I can go, yeah, the IoT thing, not working out at all. <laughs> <laughs> or you have moist uh, sensors in all the uh, plants in your house, but they're not connected because you couldn't get Wi-Fi working. <laughs> yes, that could be it. So uh, what's up with you? So on my side, it's uh, actually spent a lot of time in recent days and weeks doing a lot of vulnerability assessments and security uh, code lifecycle or SDL, uh, security development lifecycle exercises, finding exploitable code. And wow, there's a lot of things to dive into. And I took a real deep dive into the rabbit hole uh, of proper code security analysis, uh, including scanning all the dependencies. And this is something I've done for quite some time and, and trying to understand and paint the picture of uh, kind of where where is the quality of our code and you know how does that meet up and measure up with the industry and um, it's looking pretty good but it's increasingly important and increasingly interesting to see how many new vulnerabilities are reported every day not every week not every year like every day there's a lot of new vulnerabilities if you, for example, and this is why I want to mention that is, if you, for example, use .NET and you rely on NuGet packages, there is a lot of exploitable things in a lot of third-party NuGet packages. And I think there was a study in 2019 or about the 2019 data breaches that 75% or something like that of all the data breaches originated from third-party code libraries. 
right? So that indicates in itself that it's extremely important to kind of find vulnerabilities in it. What I didn't know was the cadence of these vulnerabilities that it's several of them per day that is just popping up all the time. Uh, so there is, I think we talked about this in, in another episode, but there is really no excuse to, to pause on your security efforts at all. Stay on top of it. And if you don't analyze code security, you need to start. And I think that one of our future episodes might be entirely about that. So where to start, what do you need, what is the baseline, and how do you stay on top of this ever-changing landscape of threats just growing? Uh, so yeah, not as much house planning or, or doing gardening or sleeping in the woods that I usually talk about, but uh, now it's a very technical, very, very serious stuff. Uh, and I just want to give that, that entire um, kind of mindset a shout out again. Shift left, focus on security early. Don't neglect it because things will happen and it will go sideways. Um, and assume breach. Assume that you're already breached and that you just need to tighten things. So this sounds both scary, but also something <laughs> yeah. that we, we definitely need to dive into deeper in a future episode. So I'll just make a note for myself that we'll schedule something around this. <laughs> so I'm, I would like, like to see your notepad now to go out of the cloud again, <laughs> go back to on-prem, let's, let's not. <laughs> More secure, underline, <laughs> underline. Alrighty, so today's episode uh, is about common approaches to building a custom API in Azure. And the, the idea probably stems from the fact that uh, during the summer, uh, I was obviously on a holiday, but oftentimes the kids, kids would go to bed at seven or eight already. And that sort of left me with an hour or two to, to do a bit of a hacking at my home office. So I built different sort of solutions. And oftentimes I ended up building or having a need to build a custom API. And that got me into thinking that perhaps we should sort of go through the, the life cycle on what do you need to worry and, and think about when you build your custom APIs in the cloud. So back in the day, and I realize I've, I've said this sentence a couple of times in the past, but back <laughs> in the day, meaning 2000 or 1995 or 2005 even, uh, when you would need to have your custom API, it would often involve two components. One would be a virtual machine that you would order from IT. That would be expensive. It would, it would be slow and a messy process. And the other would be figuring out what sort of an API, what sort of a contract would you build for it? For it? How, how would you um, define the metadata and the schema of that? And you would delve into SOAP and XML messages and all those horrible things we don't really like to talk about anymore. And nowadays, at least that's my perception, but often when I need an API or if I'm part of a project where we define that, okay, there needs to be an API here, we usually assume it's a REST-based API. Would this be the same for you as well? That is the same. Um, I haven't heard anyone say, we really need to build a, a SOAP-based API or anything like that for a long time. Everything is REST-based. Every API that I consume, all the SDKs I use, all these services in Azure, everything that I use is REST-based. So when I build my own stuff, I also follow the same patterns. Uh, and there are some, some good guidance, of course, on how to build a proper uh, REST API. So I try to follow that at all times. 
to make sure that whoever consumes that API can actually consume it using the, the REST standards. So you don't build anything that is slightly different, but behaves kind of like a REST API. Either you build it or you don't. And yeah, I, everything I do is also based on REST APIs, if I build an API, definitely. And often you, you hear people talk about RESTful web services, so it implies you would consume or use or publish that over the web, obviously. And the RESTful implies that it's representational state transfer, meaning that, that you can invoke your API through HTTP uh, methods, meaning get and head and post and put and patch and so on and so forth. Usually I see get and post, those are the things. Obviously you can use the other ones as well, but it's been too many years since I last saw an API that demanded that I need the options to do something, even if, if that's still very much a possibility. Yeah. What I like today as well, just to angle that a bit on, on the side of Azure, uh, which is, is our core focus, is a lot of the APIs you consume today in Azure, they also they have the raw REST API that you can consume as a consumer, but they also usually have an SDK. So if you're using typed code and using .NET or using maybe JavaScript or whatever, there's usually a library for that as well. So you can consume the service using a, an SDK instead of just the REST API. So you have also options, not just for building it, but when you consume it. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that and might be good to, to keep an eye open for. Yeah, and, and I've often seen that if I want to consume something that I figure, oh, it's in preview or it's, it's a beta API, the SDK might be updated for that or it might be lacking just that one method that I was actually looking for. And then I sort of need to resort to doing these raw REST calls to, to get and achieve what I need. So the acts of, of building an API, let's begin with that. Uh, first, you choose a framework and then a runtime. And the usual frameworks would include Node.js, C-sharp, meaning .NET Core, usually nowadays, Python, even Java. Do, do you see people building APIs with PowerShell? I have some, uh, seen people using Azure Functions and PowerShell together for a couple of things. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I mean, I've seen edge cases about pretty much everything. And there are some cool things and there are some crazy things and new ideas and, and old ideas. But in general, um, the ones you mentioned are popular. And what I see most today is Node.js and C Sharp. And I come from the .NET world myself. I build mostly .NET Core solutions. So I'm spending a lot of my time in that. But I have seen uh, Python also explode in a lot of areas. Uh, I've never built an API with it, but I do see that it's getting traction and it's growing like crazy in popularity as a programming language as well. I, Java, I, though, I haven't touched it in 15 years and I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, so. keep it like that. Uh, I haven't touched Java in 15 or 20 years now. Uh, my 12-year-old, my, my oldest son, he sent me a WhatsApp message maybe two days ago. Uh, I think he was on his way home from school, and he sent me a WhatsApp message and said, Dad, what was that Python fundamentals course on Pluralsight? What was the address again? So I'm immensely happy that his school is apparently advocating for getting started with Python. 
because I, I, I feel it's getting more traction nowadays and you can definitely use that to build your APIs as well. For me, I often go with C Sharp. Sometimes I do JavaScript, but not Node.js that much. So I often go with a different runtime than, than, than just Node.js and whatever you have in there. So based on the framework, you often then choose a runtime. The, the logical choices in Azure include Azure Functions, super lightweight to, to start with, uh, Logic Apps, which is more of an orchestration platform, Azure API Apps, which is an Azure app service that exposes your API, or a container. So you build your API in whatever framework you choose, then you... Uh, deploy that within a container, and then you host that container in any of the possibilities you have in Azure. Um, and I, I really like these options. And, and I think we, before we started recording this show, we mentioned to, to one another in, a, in, a, in, the, in the pre-brief a little bit that there are so many options for building an API. We cannot list them all here, but these are the, the common ones. And talking about containers, I see a lot of people throwing them into AKS or Azure Kubernetes services. So that is growing also immensely in adoption. And I see a lot of effort from Microsoft being put into AKS and Kubernetes, which is really cool. So I see a lot of people um, using the orchestration around that for scaling out their applications, including API apps. So that is definitely gaining in popularity. And, and you can just build a C-sharp app or API and throw that into a container and run that inside of AKS, et voila, you have an API. Obviously, that's a bit of a, um, that's the, the end goal, but there might be some hurdles as always along the way. But definitely, these are the options. I, I think we mentioned this perhaps almost a year ago in one of the very first episodes of the show. We did that blog post together perhaps a year ago as well, on building a custom API and deploying that within a container in Azure. So we'll make sure to put that link in the show notes as well, because it's very much relevant even today. What I do usually, I start when I'm building my custom API, I, I often, I want to get something running first, and that helps me in thinking how I want to uh, fiddle with everything and, and what the end result might be. So I often start with logic apps because it's graphical. It helps me visualize things. And then depending on that, I might move all of the logic to Azure Functions if it's relatively simple or I can fit it in one screen. Or if I feel, well, there's probably a bit more to here, I move on to Azure API apps. So logic apps I often see is a nice segue to move to Azure Functions, which is perhaps smaller implementations or Azure API apps, which I feel are more static and monolithic in the sense that once you deploy those, you don't easily go and fiddle with them because you know you need to deploy and you need to worry on a lot of things that might break. So when you mentioned here that you move from Logic Apps to, to Azure Functions, so my understanding is in, in Logic Apps, when you build this kind of in the UI, can you expand it from there somehow to say take whatever I just defined and export that as a an API swagger or something so you can then import that into code or is it more of a manual okay I know what I built the process works now I need to make this more robust using code uh, or more complex or whatever or how do you kind of move from one to the other 
That's a great question. So there's no direct export from logic apps to functions because functions could be any of the, the frameworks we mentioned or, or even, even some additional ones. And logic apps is declarative, meaning that, that you have a JSON file defining that this is what you're actually building. And let me give you this graphical uh, view on that. But what I do is when I start with the logic apps, I, I then quickly realize that this is the process. This is what I'm actually building. And if I see that I need to convert this date time first, then I need to convert that currency from US dollars to Euro. First, I need to get the uh, currency exchange rates for today's. I, I often then already see that, okay, this needs to happen in an Azure function because I need to fiddle with so many small nuggets of information that it's more effective to just do, do one method in Azure Functions that will take care, care of all of this. And what helps me in there is that while I'm building my first implementation of the Logic App, I often also build a super simple command line tool that helps me debug and call that API. And I can do all of this locally, so I can run the Logic App, the Azure API app, the container, or the functions locally. And I have the test bench tool locally as well. And I end up having often a bit of that logic already in the command line tool. And that I can copy paste within the Azure function as is. And if I still want to continue with the logic apps, that's perfect. I can also mix and match this. So the logic apps can just be the orchestration and the Azure function takes care of the more detailed things that might be a little bit cumbersome to do in logic apps. I, th I think as always, there's always a decision to make in what direction you go and what kind of runtime you choose to plug your API into. And, and you know, the variables for, for that is pretty much endless. So the, the basic consultant answer we've been doing for 20 years, it, it depends. Yeah. Uh, but you, there's a lot of options. Yeah. So once you have your framework and your runtime, uh, more or less, you, you sort of know now what you're building and how it should work. And then when you have some sort of a version up and running that you are confident enough that perhaps I want to expose this or I want to deploy this to Azure now, uh, the different options. So obviously, if you're building something for real, you might go with Azure DevOps or GitHub. In GitHub, you would use Actions and Azure DevOps, you would use the pipelines. And, and these would help you automate the, the, the integration and the deployment of your custom API. Uh, what I often resort to doing is just Visual Studio right-click publish, no, even no, though... No, nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hear me out, hear me out. So that I know, okay, at least this works. Because yeah. if I spend a lot of time in Azure DevOps and it fails, it might be because I messed up something already back in Visual Studio. But I admit it's all too easy to deploy something from Visual Studio. It's published. It works. Oh, it's dinner time. Let me just leave this in production. And then two weeks later, you need to deploy an update. You don't have any idea how it works anymore. Yeah. And, and I also guess that, uh, because I, I agree with this, I also use right-click publish, actually, but I never do that to production. I only do it in, in test and or staging uh, environments or dev environments. Um, but I mean, there's an old saying, I don't recall the exact words, but it's something you don't spend 30 minutes automating something that takes five minutes to build, right? Uh, well, we do that, but we shouldn't. 
so obviously, if, if you're building something, uh, hello world example to test that, okay, my API should work now, I should have an endpoint, it should be able to connect to whatever uh, service is pulling data from, whatever. Right-click, publish, get it up in Azure, ensure that it works, you can call it. At that point, that's when I'm uh, putting my foot down and say, all right, that was my one and only or final right-click publish from here on that is automated. So every time I commit to my code repository in a separate branch, that branch, uh, I need to create a pull request, uh, either in Azure DevOps or GitHub, depending on where the code is. That pull request needs to be reviewed and approved, uh, both by a person, if we're multiple developers, uh, but also by a process, which is the build process or the CI. And when the CI is done and says, yep, everything is good, and the person said, yep, I approve this, you can opt in to then have the, the CD part or the continuous deployment to say that if this is then merged back to the main branch uh, or whatever branch you want to deploy from, then you can automatically deploy it up into uh, test, automatically then verify it, and then automatically get it into production if you want the full cycle. Okay. Uh, I have a quick side note here uh, from putting your food down and really deciding on something. I put my food down yesterday and I decided that whenever I open LinkedIn from now on, I won't open it to scroll through the newsfeed because it's been a habit of mine to spend two minutes just scrolling there. And I'm not really sure if I'm getting anything valuable from there now. So I open it mostly now for notifications and putting my food down, deciding on that. And just today, having a cup of coffee after lunch, I'm scrolling through LinkedIn feed and yeah. I, yeah. So I remind myself again, I really need to put my foot down on two things. Stop looking at the LinkedIn feed and stop right-click publishing. There you go. I can get you a t-shirt. That would be great. <laughs> uh, then uh, once, once we've deployed everything, uh, then of course we need to secure the API. And this is often part of the whole, whole building and planning uh, it, but securing the API, uh, especially for logic apps and Azure functions, you can just get the get the token or key and pass that as part of the uh, HTTP query string. Super easy, but obviously if somebody gets that, then they can also call your API. So it's not too secure unless you secure that secret at the same time. Yeah, and I, I recall that for Azure Functions, we had some discussions with uh, some of the team at, at Microsoft at one point where they said, if you use the API keys, do that for development and or testing purposes. But as soon as you go into production, you need to authenticate your apps properly. So I guess yeah. that's the, the next step. How would I do that? If an API key is one option, but perhaps not recommended for sensitive production workloads, how do I authenticate my API? So obviously you, you will uh, result to using Azure AD because that secures everything in the cloud in the end. Uh, so in Azure AD, first you would create your API. Let's let's say it's an Azure function that, that you've created. Then in Azure AD, you will create an Azure AD app registration. And through that registration, you will grant the permission that the API can do. So you would say the API can read um, the user's profile, for example. And then uh, you get the... Uh, you add the token validation code in your Azure function so that your Azure function can now connect with your Azure AD app. And for that, you need the client ID, the tenant ID, and the instance ID. And those you need to securely store in either Key Vault or in the Azure functions app settings. 
So one option is, is AAD and AAD, as we know, we can put some, some links in the show notes to securing your both web apps and APIs and, and whatever you have you with AAD, which is pretty straightforward. Um, well, at least I think so. I've worked with it for several years, but it doesn't get trickier by the years. It, on the, quite the contrary, the UI and the process in the Azure portal, if you use that or the CLI, just get a, gets easier and more transparent for what's going on. So I really like that. Um, so AAD, an obvious choice uh, and a short road to success. But what if, um, what if I don't want to use that? Or if I don't use that, are there other options to put some, some kind of protection layer around it? Yeah, there's a couple of other interesting options. And uh, one of those would be API management. So that's a separate service in Azure, Azure API management. And it allows you to create a proxy in front of your API. So you could pick up your custom API and publish that through a proxy in Azure API management. What you can also do, you can take an existing API that perhaps somebody else built that you have access to, and you can uh, publish that through Azure API management also by adding your own business rules or restrictions on top of this. And the great thing about API management is that it's, it's very flexible nowadays. And they introduced a new developer portal for that just recently. Uh, the challenge is that depending on what services do you need, the pricing tier needs to be defined. And I've had a couple of customers where we had to use API management. One of those needed to have the SOAP to REST translation. So they would have an old uh, SOAP-based web services in on-premises, and we would need to ex uh, to publish that as a RESTful API. So we would need to do this translation on the fly. And at the time, this was about two years ago, at the time, the API management required the, the most highest tier of that functionality. Right. Sim simply by deploying that, the cost went through the roof. So the customer yeah. instead said, let's just do this manually. So we created a custom API that did that uh, SOAP to REST. And it took about 10 days to build that instead of having all the fancy things from API management. So in a yeah. way, you have to be careful to figure out what's the optimal solution. And, and this is what I've heard from a lot of people that I talk to that are consuming APIs or using API management to have their consumers um, connect to that is that the pricing is the pain point. It is becoming increasingly more expensive the, the more features you want to use, obviously. Uh, what I like about it is that it has built-in throttling, uh, which is when we talk about securing API, it's not just about having an API key or authenticating, but even if you are authenticated, you can still DDoS an API. You can still hammer it so much that it stops uh, answering requests. With API management, you also get throttle requests where you can say that a consumer get so and so many credits to make this and that many calls per hour or per day or per whatever. Um, so you kind of can define and know upfront that regardless of how many people sign up, I know in total uh, per consumer, they will never go above 1000 requests per minute or hour or whatever you define. So that's also another way to protect your API. Uh, because we, we often talk about authentication and authorization, but it's also throttling and resilience and, and like handling transient falls and, and all these things and making something resilient. It's incredibly important 
to think about what is the load going to be? Are there going to be spikes? And API management can help us with just that as well. And another option uh, beyond using Azure AD to secure API or API management is using Azure AD application proxy, which is a yet another service. And this requires the Azure AD premium P1 grade license for your users. And the idea with this is that it will expose something, not necessarily an API, but typically an HTTP or HTTPS endpoint that you can then secure with Azure AD first. And I've used this a couple of times to expose some sort of an internal on-premises solution for external users or users who cannot access the local network. And Azure AD application proxy is super useful for this exact scenario. And there's another thing that comes to mind that we didn't talk, talk about in, in regards to this. And I think Azure front door that you can use to uh, kind of secure your web apps, you can also use to secure web APIs. Uh, and that also, talking about throttling, it also has DDoS protection and additional features to protect not only the authentication authorization, but also the OWASP top 10. Uh, if you get hammered by bots trying to do things or inject uh, malicious code and stuff like that, you also have the, the Azure front door might be an option to take a look at or, or maybe an application gateway. But I think uh, using a firewall, uh, which if you use a function, for example, there's even a configuration option in the config settings to say, I want to use a web application firewall for this thing or an Azure front door, and you can configure it that way. So you can get a, a lot of help uh, if you do this in Azure. And obviously, depending on what kind of runtime you do, you, you have these different options. So API apps, app services, and function apps, you can just plug in Azure front door as a firewall on front as well. That doesn't come with all the uh, API keys and user management and stuff like that, which the API management does. But if you're only looking for protecting against uh, threats and, and not perhaps API abuse, then Azure Front Door is a cheaper option, I believe, um, you know, to, to, with a nice road to success. This, this reminds me of, uh, I wasn't sure if it's still a thing to spam people a lot. So for my work and private email, I don't get that much spam anymore. It's automatically filtered, obviously. So what I did uh, perhaps two weeks ago, I went to my own blog and I added a contact me form. So instead of just putting my email address in there, I, I had a nice form you could fill out that I'd like to talk to you about whatever. And then you put in your email address and you submit and that emails the form to me. And I did not add any additional validation. So I figured if somebody's going to spam me through this, then go ahead. My Office 365 will take care of that. In two weeks, I think I've gotten about 500 emails and about 497 of those have been spam. So yeah, <laughs> it's still definitely a thing. <laughs> and now I need to figure some sort of a validation in between. So this is securing. Are there other options for securing API that you can think of from the top of your mind? Uh, I think if you gave me Google, I could come up with 20 more options. Uh, perhaps one more is that, especially if you go with Azure API apps, so it's an app service, meaning it's a web app hosting your custom API. Uh, obviously, in the web app uh, management blade in Azure portal, you, you do have the authentication button 
that allows you to quite easily wire up an Azure AD based authentication for your API. And that allows you to leverage the different identity providers, obviously, that Azure AD provides. All right. So securing, this is like common approaches to how to do that. There's obviously a lot more in-depth details that we can discuss, which we can then do in, in one of those episodes uh, that we talked about we want to do. But what about monitoring? So one thing is we talked about building it or deciding on the framework and runtime, and then you deploy it using either a pipeline or just right-click publish, please don't. Uh, and then you secure the API in whatever fashion that you need for your business workload and, and for your uh, kind of network. What about when it's up and running? How do you ensure that it is up and running? How do you kind of monitor it, right? Because there's options for that as well. So last week I was delivering a, a five-day lecture to a group of students on how do you build enterprise-grade solutions in Azure. And, and I had a couple of labs for them to complete. One of those was in Application Insights, uh, which I very much prefer for all sorts of monitoring and troubleshooting, but also for analytics. So App Insights definitely is, is great because it gives you the telemetry. It also gives you great insights into historical data. Uh, but what I, what I often resort to be of besides App Insights is just using Azure Monitor, meaning that however I've deployed the API, I often have a blade with a couple of metrics that I can see, like number of HTTP 500 errors. If it's zero, that tells me, well, we're doing quite okay. Or it's not running at all. <laughs> yeah, that could be the other one, but at least could I'm not getting any at least I'm not getting any errors, so I should be good. <laughs> yeah. What you don't know doesn't hurt, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. what I like about what you mentioned with application inside, it's um, I use this exclusively for everything that I build because the telemetry I get is awesome, but you also get log analytics, like it's backed by log analytics. So you can create quite powerful queries to kind of consume all the logs. And a while ago, I built something called log analytics client, which is, I, I believe I wrote this in 2018 or something, and you used it in one of your blog posts. Yep. Um, I think that was called a log analytics wrapper at that point, but I yep. kind of rebranded that and I threw it up now on NuGet, so it's available as a loganalytics.client. So you can just say, Log analytics client, here's my API key or my, my workspace ID and my shared key. And then you have your typed entities in C Sharp. So whenever I get an exception in my code, I have one of these clients as an instance and I just say, send all these exceptions to log analytics, bam. And then I also use App Insights from code to do custom metrics, custom logging, and custom events, stuff like that. But all the raw logs, which I don't really want to pollute everything in, in App Insights with. I dump this into log analytics, and then I use KQL or, or Custo Query language, either from command line or from the browser. I can go in and say, get me all exceptions or get me all errors for this application in this time period uh, where the message contained this or that or you know whatever I'm looking for, or was sent by this machine or from this resource group or you know whatever. And that is such a powerful thing all of these things come if you just enable App Insights for your, for example, Azure function or your API app. And you say, I want to use App Insights. Boom, you can start sending all those things into App Insights and the underlying log analytics. And that's pretty sweet. Uh, testament on how flexible App Insights is. Uh, I built a prototype for a customer 
uh, on leveraging app insights in a, in a Win32 graphical Windows application. So they wanted to get insights into why are customers clicking on a different tab. So I would record a lot of telemetry and push all of that to App Insights in Azure. So later on, we could go, okay, so we have this sort of a customer using your application to do whatever the application did at the time. But now we can figure out why did they go to the second tab and what did they actually do in that tab? So it also gives this, this sort of business analytics beyond just the code and telemetry analytics. Yeah, like kind of the user funnel or the user flow. So how, how does the user actually interact and where do they go? And I also use that um, for, for applications that I have on front end. Some of my applications like we talk about today is an API or is a backend service or background uh, job of some kind. But if I have this uh, UI, this is a great point. I want to know what's going on and how they got to the exception, right? Because sometimes the application will fail for some whatever reason. Maybe there's a bug in the code, maybe intermittent server error on a, a service that you rely on, you know, whatever. There might be something that crashes the code, which shouldn't happen, but it will at some point probably happen. Then you could see that, well, the user went here and then they went here and on this page it crashed. And this happened 250 times in the last hour for different users. All right, that's a problem and that is escalated now to the highest priority. So it's also not just about getting the exceptions. And I, I think this is a great point. I didn't think about that. But the, the user analysis and the user flow analysis, what actually happened before the exception? So what are the steps that happened in the services? What kind of requests came in? Well, he made a get request for this endpoint and then a get for the secret from the key vault and then a get for this and then a post, boom, that's where it fell. All right, so then you know what worked and at what point the failure comes in. So that's, that's pretty sweet. So I'm listening in on this and I'm reflecting back to perhaps 1998 when we had a problem with one back of our web servers <laughs> back in go. the old good days. <laughs> and we had a problem with one of the web services or websites. And somebody said, you see, have a look what, what's failing and what you would literally do. You would tell that to a Linux box, you would do tail dash F access log in Apache. And then you would grab with that IP address and you get 2000 lines and then you start sorting through that with a text editor like VI to figure out whatever went wrong here, I need to figure that out. So we've come a long way since then, but it also requires that you sort of let go of your old habits and especially in app insights that you click through the user funnel, you click through those different functionalities and really start using those as opposed to saying, well, I didn't have these before, so I'm not maybe using them today either. And what about customer logging uh, for monitoring? I realize that I'm not using this too much anymore, but often if I need to sort of do quick troubleshooting, I might spit something out in a text file in Azure storage, for example. Yeah, um, this is a good point. And while I would like to say everything goes into log analytics and, and app insights, I've also used um, table storage for just raw logs. And sometimes this has been, because I'm, I'm running a, what I call a job or an analysis or whatever it is, which is a very specific set of things that I'm doing in, in code and that might take 20 minutes. So sometimes I want all the logs relating to that to be dumped into a blob storage as a single JSON file or as a single text file. 
then I do that so I can just import it into one of my tools that can digest the log. Um, but I, I very seldom do this anymore, but, but that's how I used to do it. You can also write to, obviously, to the file system and stuff like that, which I don't really recommend. Um, and you can, of course, hook up trace listeners of various sorts um, to do tracing and stuff like that. But sure, custom logging, you can do this in a variety of ways. And if you're a developer, you know all about Log4Net and all these things, you can just plug them in and, and set a source for where this is going to go or a destination where the, the logs are going to go. Um, but for me, I am so happy with how log analytics and app insights work. I've, I'm never going to look back. If I have everything else in Azure like I do now, this is, this is solid and it works and I'm super happy because I can figure out the issues real quick and I can get them deployed real quick without right-click publish. One of the happy places in my life is that when I'm creating a custom API and still running everything locally, uh, I often spit stuff out in a, in a text file that's often called log.txt and that goes to C slash temp. So often I open C slash temp and I have a log.txt, log1.txt, and I'm not really sure what they are, but they have to be important because they're in the temp directory and they have some random timestamps. So this is something that I often start with and then I graduate to App Insights, the more closer I get to releasing something and deploying that to Azure. Right. So what I, what I did that related to that is I built a core library uh, and this core library has everything ready for log analytics, for app insights, for telemetry of different kinds, like all these things like key vaults and whatever I need to do with key vaults and manage identity, all of these things, I built this into a common library or core library that I use every time I start a project, even if it's a hello world API, I plug this library in and automatically I have injected log analytics and app insights. The only thing I need to do is add the config values. And then voila, I can spit everything out from the first second I'm, I'm publishing my API. We'll also get it in App Insights and Log Analytics. So, so that's what I do. And, and I'm never looking back. That is so nice. That's a great approach. So what I'll do is I'll do my own core library that spits everything to C slash temp. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it just works. Uh, okay, so this was all we had on building APIs in Azure, a sort of end-to-end what you need to think through when you're building a custom API. Uh, in the show content, uh, we've added two links. Uh, one on API design. It's an ebook from Microsoft. It's free. And one on APIs and microservices, also an ebook. And I found these two. They're fairly recent and, and quick reads. So definitely have a look on those. And then we have a link to the Visual Studio Code extension if you want to manage Azure API management. And also a great blog post that I found on, on securing your uh, APIs with Azure AD. So I have one final request for anyone tuning in. Um, we are seeing we're, we're getting a lot of listeners to, to the podcast. And first of all, thank you to everyone who's tuning in. Uh, what we'd love to do is get some feedback on what you want to hear next. Because what we talk now in this episode, for example, is common approaches to building a custom API. But if there's something specific you want to hear about that, let us know either on Twitter or reach out over email or go to the website controlaltazure.com and click contact and you will be able to, to reach us easily. Make a request 
what you want to hear about, or even if you want to come on the show and be a guest and talk about it, uh, just reach out and we'll make that happen. Well said. Uh, that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening and until next time. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.